that's exactly right, General Quarters. General Quarters, man your battle stations. This is Battleground, and today is Friday, August the 7th. Uh, we are 89 days away from the election, or is it 88? Uh, wow. Uh, so much going on in Washington. Today we have James Rosen, uh, senior reporter for Sinclair Group, best-selling New York Times author. James, welcome to the show. Hopefully you'll uh, shed some light on this madness. Well, so am I allowed to come out from my battle station that I'm manning or, or from <laughs> underneath my desk where I'm, I'm hovering in fear? Hey, man, you know what? Uh, you tell me. You've, uh, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, so. Well, you're very kind to invite me, I'm, and I'm very grateful for, uh, for, to appear with you, Ivan. Well, I've been, you know, following you for a long, long time since your Fox days, and, uh, you know, always think that uh, re regardless of where anybody stands, um, I think you do a, a pretty damn good job as a, as, a, as a reporter on trying to report the news, the facts versus opinions, right? And, uh, and that's real hard to find in D.C. today. Uh, yesterday, well, I, uh, you're very kind to say so. Thank you. Yeah, yesterday we had a friend, uh, Gonzalo Barker from Voice of America. You know, he was at Univision, at Telemundo, at BBC, you know. And, uh, and, and he's, he's one of those guys. Uh, you know, I, you know he, he leans where he leans. But when he does his job, uh, you know, he does his job. And, and it's so bizarre that you can't find that today uh, in, in, in the media anymore. Everybody has gone to uh, commentary, I guess. Huh? Well, you know, the fact is reporters are human beings. And so like all other human beings, reporters have innate biases of one kind or another toward uh, a particular position on a particular issue or a particular ideological philosophy or what have you. The key is for the reporter to recognize this central fact about himself and then to undertake the process to correct for it in his or her final product. And I've always tried to do that. I, like anybody else, have my ideas or my opinions about issues or events or personalities, uh, but I try to correct for them in my work and make sure that I'm really just presenting the facts or um, a well-reasoned and balanced analysis. That's great. Yeah. And, that, and that's what it should be. But yeah, it's got to be tough, man. I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, I can see how easy it is to to go to opinion, right? Because that's what I do. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm opinion. I'm by no means any kind of journalist or reporter. I don't even know how to write. Uh, you, know. <laughs> uh, you know, honestly, I, I would say that you have the harder job, Ivan, because in being responsible for providing your opinion, about subject after subject, event after event, issue after issue, personality after personality, you're responsible with coming up with some thoughtful and reasoned approach to the issue that includes not only your opinion, but presumably some prescription for how to fix the thing at hand or how to, um, how to resolve the issue um, or steer the event toward a better outcome. I don't, um, I'm not responsible for, for that much thinking. I've just got to tell you what happened. Um, I had the opportunity years and years ago to conduct a, a one-hour interview with a hero of mine, William F. Buckley Jr., who is the founder of the modern conservative movement, wow. as you know, the founder of National Review magazine and yeah. host the firing line and a very diverse guy. He, he, he also uh, wrote spy novels that were bestsellers. He was a sailor who sailed across the oceans five times, just a, a brilliant polymath. And this was to celebrate his 75th, uh, 75th birthday. And it was in his home in New York, which was very elegant. And I began, well, I asked him, this was October of 2000. So the Clinton presidency was winding down. Impeachment had come and gone. 
Um, and all eyes were now in October of 2000 on the coming election between Bush and Gore. But I asked him this question from a historical perspective, which I often like to employ. I said, Mr. Buckley, um, what ought a responsible historian to say about the Clinton presidency? And he paused, he had this droll humor, and he said, well, it seems to me uh, that a responsible historian will first tell what happened. <laughs> and that's how I kind of view my job, is just tell what happened. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, so quickly, tell us what happened with the, uh, with the Obama DOJ. I know you got caught up in some of that stuff. That was, uh, that was a little strange, right? So, in essence, to try and boil this down succinctly, which is another of the, uh, the occupational challenges the, 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 the conscientious reporter will face, um, in May of 2013, I awoke to a Washington Post article that uh, reported that four years prior, I had been uh, the subject of an FBI affidavit for a search warrant application, which was granted, which permitted the uh, FBI at that time to essentially rummage through my personal Gmail account and about 20 phone lines associated with me, my home phone, my cell phone, uh, my wife's cell phone, uh, the various booths I used at Fox News at the time, the White House booth, the State Department booth, the Pentagon booth, um, um, and even the home phone lines of my parents. Uh, and the purpose of all that rummaging was for the Department of Justice and the FBI to uh, ascertain who my sources were for a series of stories I had reported on various facets of North Korea. At the time, the succession policy that was uh, destined to place Kim Jong-un at the top of that power structure where he is today, uh, and also at the time, uh, how North Korea might respond to various diplomatic measures the Obama administration was uh, considering enacting against Pyongyang. Um, and a, a national furor ensued. I briefly outtrended my fellow celebrities, Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter. I uh, was the subject of, uh, you know, several White House briefings and so on. It was, an, it was an extraordinary experience for a reporter particularly, because you're not used to becoming the story. Um, in the end, um, the uh, Obama administration acknowledged that it had no uh, uh, intention to prosecute me, that they just wanted to prosecute the sources. But that effectively amounted to an admission that they had no business seeking that search warrant uh, for my, my, my private uh, communications. And um, President Obama himself, in a, um, in a, a speech to the National, uh, the National Defense University um, on counterterrorism, um, acknowledged that he did not want to see the criminalization of working reporters. So he tasked the man who swiftly had admitted responsibility for approving this, um, this search warrant application, the attorney general himself, Eric Holder, uh, with getting to the bottom of what had happened and then proposing reforms which were duly enacted. Um, Mr. Holder, it turned out, five days before that Washington Post article had appeared, had testified before the House Judiciary Committee and in response to one lawmaker's question had said, words fairly close to this, in terms of the potential prosecution of a reporter for the unauthorized disclosure of classified information, 
Mr. Holder said, that's not something I've ever heard of, have been involved in, or consider wise policy. And in light of his subsequent disclosure that he in fact approved a search warrant on precisely that basis uh, four years earlier, uh, he, um, he was later found by the Republican majority of the House Judiciary Committee to have provided misleading testimony to Congress. Um, the, in, in historical terms, Ivan, the case merits attention because uh, in the history of the United States, no other reporter um, had ever been designated formally, as I was in the FBI search warrant application, um, a, um, a criminal co-conspirator in the violation of the Espionage Act. Yeah, I know. Not even, not even Neil Sheehan, by the way, who was the New York Times reporter who published the Pentagon Papers in 1971, was thusly designated by the Nixon administration. Um, so it was a historic case. I'm grateful that I got through it. Um, uh, an individual who was identified as one of my sources um, later served a prison sentence in connection with this case, having pleaded guilty rather than face the debilitating costs of a lengthy trial. So it's a very serious matter. And whenever anyone complains about President Trump's treatment of the press, and surely there are aspects to Mr. Trump's treatment of the press that warrant legitimate complaint, um, I think that uh, there's nothing I've seen that the Trump administration has done that yet approaches the seriousness of, of that conduct towards me. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I think, um, you know, when that broke, I remember everyone um everyone on the right already you know thought the worst of, of of obama or maybe a lot of people on the right already thought the worst right because everything is very polarized but um it, it was shocking to see um not this outrage from the left that you would expect um but i think there was an appropriate response at least from the press right where um people uh responded with a what the hell is going on here because aside from you there were also a couple ap reporters right that were dragged into the same thing if i'm right I can't not the same thing a, a, separate, a, a separate an entirely separate case but yeah. um yes i was gratified that um what we might call the mainstream media rose to the defense of fox news and of yeah. me i remain grateful for that a lot of people spoke out uh, Jake Tapper um, of ABC News, um, uh, Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker broke the story about how my parents' phone lines had been included. Um, so uh, they appropriately recognized that this was an attack on, on journalism itself, in a sense. Um, and while it may have pained some folks to come to the recognition in, in 2013 that Fox News had real reporters, that, that those reporters focused on real subjects like national security, and that those reporters sometimes even broke exclusive news involving um, potentially classified information, they nonetheless recognized that um, this was um, truly uh, an offensive moment in the history of the Republic. Uh, and you didn't have to just rely on uh, the commentators at Fox News to hear this. This was the, the Obama administration was decried as the most controlling and secretive where the press was concerned. In, uh, exceeding even the Nixon administration by the likes of the executive editor, uh, the former executive editor of the Washington Post, Len Downey, uh, the executive editor at the New York Times at the time, Jill Abramson. Uh, so there was unanimity that, that a line had been crossed here that was very serious. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it, it was bizarre. I mean, uh, 
with that, there still seems to be this surprise with the whole Russia thing, the whole spy thing, FISA warrants, everything. And, you know, like I tell people, well, it's not like you didn't do it before. You know, he, he spied on, on, on journalists. But, you know, leaving that aside, I appreciate sharing that because uh, it's always cool to hear the story firsthand. But uh, what the hell is going on in, in the country, man? Uh, you have uh, New York <laughs> suing the NRA. You got rioters suing the city for riot gear. Um, man, uh, Biden doesn't know, you know, where he is half the time. The Democrats are trying to convince the world that he shouldn't debate. Um, Congress doesn't get, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to reach any kind of agreement on on a relief package before the recess, unless some miracle happens today. Um, how do you see? How do you see the country today, James? You know, having covered politics for so long. The, the 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 events you just uh, recited as evidence of a kind of um, grand and gross mis dysfunction on the part of the country are seem to me to be the least of it. Uh, the the rioting that we saw in American cities, um, the uh, and the and the fact of the pandemic itself yeah. uh, are are the two greatest um, examples of um, a country um, off kilter. Uh, and maybe even indeed a world off kilter in the case of the coronavirus. But um, um, you ask how I see the country today. Um, to take a 30,000 foot view, I see the United States as very much still a great nation, but one that is struggling to come to terms with profound changes uh, of the demographic nature. Uh, the, the, the whole social fabric of our country is changing because the population and the makeup of the population of the country are changing rapidly. And at the same time, we are coming to grips with uh, rapidly evolving technology, um, which I think, uh, according to the projections of much more learned people on the subject than myself, will soon outstrip our intellectual capacity to process it all. Um, in just in terms of the, the speed with which computing power itself uh, multiplies over, over time, uh, that, that is accelerating and, it's, um, and it may be growing beyond our capacity to control. Um, and at the same time, uh, we are grappling with the fact that the United States some two decades ago began to lose its standing as, uh, as perhaps the, the, uh, the country that can, can shape world events unilaterally. And so China is a huge story of our time. They are the world's second largest economy, where 20 years ago they weren't. Uh, that's extraordinarily rapid change in historical terms. And um, it's interesting, I interviewed a professor recently at American University named Justin Jacobs, who's a historian of, of, China, of modern China. Um, and I asked him if he thought that the pandemic would mark a, a milestone in China's long, slow, evolving history of dealings with the rest of the world. A major milestone was 1972 when President Nixon visited China. Right. Another major milestone was 1979 when the United States and China under Jimmy Carter uh, established formal diplomatic relations. So I asked Professor Jacobs if 
the pandemic, the COVID-19 episode of 2020 will mark a milestone. He said it would, because for the first time in an unmistakably clear way, I'm paraphrasing, but faithfully, um, the world and, and including the corporate sector of the United States was, was made to see that the costs of doing business with China exceeded the benefits. So we are coming to grips as a country with profound changes in our own demographic makeup, um, with our own, uh, with, with the, the, the pace and speed of tech, technological advancement, and also with uh, a multipolar world uh, that I should also mention includes not only nation states like China, but non-state actors in an increasing way. So it's a, the 21st century is a, an often bewildering and frightening time, but we've faced major challenges before, and I think we're ultimately going to come out on top again. And I think uh, that's that that that's spot on, right? Because I also agree. I think uh, I think this pandemic, I think COVID, um, will go down as one of those transformational events in history. And you know, I think when all this is said and done, you know, there's going to be a major reorganization, right? Geopolitically, manufacturing, economically, everything. Um, how that works out or how it plays out, we'll see, right? Um, we might even have seen the death of the handshake, Ivan. Yeah. Yeah. You We're know, down I, to elbowing. I, I haven't, you know, that's bizarre, man. I, I didn't even think about that. I don't think I've shaken anybody's hand in months. <laughs> and it's not because you're, you're rude, right? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a health, it's a health concern. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I didn't even think about that. That's, uh, that, that's, that's strange. So what do you think? Uh, you think um, the House, the Senate, the White House, do they reach an agreement before we, uh, before close of business today, before we go on uh, onto the weekend and, and, and they take off on recess? Steny Hoyer, the uh, House Majority Leader for the Democrats, had issued uh, an advisory to the entire Democratic caucus, um, I believe uh, earlier this week, uh, to the effect that um, none of the members of the House Democratic uh, caucus should expect to go home for the August district period, as they like to call it now, rather than recess. Um, I guess they get tired of of being likened to and likening themselves to third graders yeah. uh, on recess, but um, until a deal was reached. Um, so perhaps that's weakened, but um, so there wasn't going to be a recess for the Democrats until a deal uh, had been reached. It does look increasingly unlikely that the White House, the Treasury Department and Capitol Hill will come to some kind of agreement on this. Uh, to hear Politico playbook tell it this morning, the fault uh, resides uh, more principally with the Democrats than the Republicans, because um, as they as they assessed it, a small deal was possible where the Republicans would have had to give a little bit, but the Democrats would have had to relinquish a lot, and they weren't willing to do so. Yeah, I, I you know listening to uh, to Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer yesterday, um, I said you know what I don't think anything is going to get done. They're just so. I've, been, I, I've, I have a question for you, if you don't mind, on the, yeah, me sure. turning the tables a bit. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I need to know where that accent is from. Uh, actually, I grew up uh, in Potomac, Maryland. Lived down in Florida and Miami for 20 years. I was actually born in Lima, Peru, but moved up here 
when I was uh, about two, three years old. My parents were actually married uh, in the U.S. My older brother was born here, but my, okay. my, my dad had a job down in Lima for a few years. He's a civil engineer, and I was born there, and two of my brothers were born. Um, so then uh, made it back to D.C. Um, I think we share, actually, I think we share a friend, right? Um, uh, maybe more than one. I, I just want to make clear first that in inquiring about your accent, I wasn't referring to any particular Latin accent. I was referring to a kind of a New York tough guy kind of brogue that I heard that I thought maybe this is a fellow New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. No, I, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, uh, I, I hey, think my accent forget about it. Is all is all over the place, right? Because um, living living up here in D.C., then going down to Miami for twenty years, uh, you have a tremendous amount of New Yorkers in South Florida, plus, uh, <laughs> plus everybody else traveling all over the world for, geez, since 1990, really. And uh, who knows, man? I don't even know where my – people don't even understand where my Spanish accent is from. They're like, are you Argentinian? Are you Colombian? Are you, you know, are you Cuban? Are you uh, – and I said, man – But I, w I would be correct if I were to say that you have seen Goodfellas, correct? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, that's all I needed to hear. All right. So you think it's not going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. Where does that leave us as a country? Um, there's about, uh, I don't know, CNBC's had, had, a, had a story about 40 million people are facing eviction. Um, there's, uh, you know, the president has talked about it. Uh, it seems that he said that he would take executive action. I don't know how he can do that. Uh, there, there's a, a tremendous, you know, um, you, there's a tremendous problem, right? Because people can't really go to work. Uh, others don't want to, right? Because they're making more than, uh, than, than, than they were before, which is an argument. Um, how do you fix this, man? I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'm uh, asking too much of a question, but I'd love to hear your opinion because you've been, you've been in DC for so long. You got to have some insight and you got to have some thoughts. Well, uh, we established earlier that I would refrain from providing either my opinion or prescriptions for how to fix things. But um, uh, that's, the, that's the refuge the reporter can seek, right? And just reporting what's happened rather than advancing ideas for how to fix things. But um, we are in an election year. Yeah. Uh, that fact was thought to impose upon the negotiations some urgency. Um, it it uh, obviously... Um, um, it, it, it didn't prevail as a, a factor for consideration, but it may yet. Uh, as you say, the president's preparing a number of executive orders uh, aimed at, uh, at curtailing some of the economic fallout from the pandemic, at least in the short term. Uh, you ask about the presidential authority for doing that, such as f for, uh, forestalling evictions, let's say. Um, and, also, and also tax policy, right? Because Grassley came out and said the president can't do anything about payroll taxes, right? Right. Those, those are those are usually properly the function of the of the legislative branch. Um, but um, uh, optics count. The president might be seen by some narrow band of persuadable voters that that still exists in the country as as uh, acting where Congress has failed to do so. Uh, I would point out that uh, in 1973, President Nixon and the Nixon White House um, or 1971, I believe it was. Um, 
uh, instituted wage and price controls throughout the country for a limited period of time. Um, and, and these things often get challenged in court as well, but the, the court process itself is, is cumbersome. It, to the broader question of, of the economic fallout from the pandemic and what can be done to redress it at this point, um, I think the country is impatient in a sense. We like getting results fast. We like delivering results fast. Um, uh, and some things don't lend themselves to immediate rectification. I think that um, we'll probably be uh, still in the pandemic. Uh, and here I'm venturing into the forbidden realm of prognostication, which uh, the, the honest and conscientious reporter will also eschew. Uh, but I, I think that um, probably a year from now is when we will start to come out of the pandemic in terms of having had a, a vaccine developed and, and widely administered. And after that, I think uh, people will, uh, uh, as your show prescribes, uh, stop manning the battle stations and get back to work. Um, but um, there's no question a lot of people are suffering in the interim. Um, there's, there's never been an incumbent president who has won re-election under these circumstances with unemployment this widespread. Um, okay. and what, with, what is the number? What, where's the number right now? 44, 45 or so million people that have filed for unemployment? Yeah, I mean, it's we're going to get job numbers uh, today, as you know, um, that will um, that will shed further light on this. But um, uh, I know I've, I've read estimates of over 30 million. It's 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 hard to uh, have an exact count of this. Yeah. But uh, there's also the underemployed, right, yeah. which when you factor them in makes the the the, the economic misery even more widespread. Yeah. Um, but it's the, the, the fact is, too, that um, the American people in in large urban settings haven't been altogether willing to uh, to to uh, undertake the practices that our top health officials have have prescribed in order to to flatten the curve and get through this. Um, and um, uh, you know, it, they, the, one could also potentially say that they didn't receive um, consistent leadership on the issue. I can still remember when the U.S. Surgeon General in April of this year uh, resorted to all caps on his Twitter feed, literally to shout at his followers not to buy masks, that they wouldn't enhance safety and you're only taking them away from, from medical personnel at the time. And now we all kind of see the mask as um, an essential element in our effort to contain this yeah um, well, there, there's a big problem with the whole mask thing <clears throat> right um aside from perception just uh, availability right um because people were trying to get these n95s and they were taking them away from first responders what he should have done is say hey go buy a three-ply right or use a bandana um, versus, mm -hmm. versus that. And I, and I get that, you know, um, one more point, if I may, Ivan, on the, on the negotiations on the Hill and at the white house and treasury. Um, what we might say about this too, is that the failure to reach a deal, uh, resembles more typical, uh, at the more typical atmosphere in official Washington, right. Of gridlock where the two sides really can't come to an agreement and, uh, can't bridge their partisan divide. Uh, that's how it's been for, what, two decades or more. Um, uh, what we saw in the early days of the pandemic was near unanimity on the part of the White House, Treasury, and, and lawmakers in speeding through the process trillion-dollar relief packages, again, with urgency and something close to unanimity. Yeah. Um, 
What does that tell you? It tells you that in a sense, at least uh, in official Washington and maybe as a barometer of the rest of the country, we have come to live with the coronavirus as a kind of normal state of events. Um, whereas it seemed like uh, an urgent emergency, and it was at the time, to enact all of those very, very expensive uh, relief measures. Uh, now, they, they, the lawmakers obviously feel that they have the luxury of, of retreating to their partisan, um, their partisan corners and acting, in essence, like business as usual on Capitol Hill, where they don't come to an agreement and gridlock prevails. And that's an interesting dynamic unto itself. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know what happens if that happens. Uh, if that happens, I think um, I think Republicans lose. Uh, I think we lose if we don't reach an agreement. That's going to cost us. That's going to cost us seats in the House. That might cost us the Senate. Um, I'm a little concerned about that, um, quite frankly. On the other side, you see, you know, three out of the last four rear clear uh, politics polls. You know, Trump is within four points. Uh, the, this huge double-digit gap and Biden run, running away with the election, hiding in a basement, um, I think has turned around. People, I don't think people are going to elect the guy that's hiding in a basement that uh, doesn't know what the hell he's talking about half the time and the other half the time he doesn't know who he is. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's starting to get real, you know, and I think everybody expected that, right? I mean, uh, typically elections tighten as they approach election day yeah. um the president has consistently trailed the former vice president in the real clear politics average of major reliable polls yeah. uh there's not been a point at any point i think in the last eight or ten months if you if you look at those those trend lines yeah. and that's why realclearpolitics.com does such a great job they they don't give you a poll they average out the major and reliable polls to right. give you not a snapshot, but to tell you what all the snapshots are saying. And I think the, the president's demotion of his campaign manager, uh, the president's call for earlier and more debates, uh, these are uh, the moves that are traditionally taken by candidates who recognize themselves uh, to be faltering and to, to be behind. Um, but, uh, you know, Vice President Biden uh, uh, made some very controversial remarks uh, just yesterday, um, contrasting African-American and Latino communities. Um, it's a reminder of uh, the fact that Mr. Biden has all along throughout his lengthy career been uh, prone to verbal gaffes. Um, his his um, isolation, if you will, um, self-isolation uh, amid the pandemic may amount to uh, prudent uh, personal practice, but it's unclear that it will uh, resonate with voters in a healthy way. It reminds me, Ivan, this is how old I am. I'm old enough to remember when Jimmy Carter, President Carter, during the Iran hostage crisis, which went on for 444 days. Um, we'll see if the pandemic lasts 444 days. But um, Jimmy Carter, when the hostages were seized in our embassy in Tehran, uh, declined to campaign. Uh, saying that his proper function was to be focused on the hostages and, and working at the White House in Washington. They called it, the reporters at the time, the Rose Garden Strategy. And while it appeared personally um, judicious, um, it, it was not sustainable as a campaign tactic. And ultimately, President Carter had to leave the Rose Garden, and ultimately, Joe Biden's going to have to leave his basement. Yeah. Do you think uh, yesterday hurts the former vice president? You know, because he, he had another controversial 
racial remark, right? That if you vote for Trump, you ain't black, right? On that podcast, he has, you know, these borderline strange comments, right? I don't want to say he's a racist, um, but if Trump or anybody else would be saying that, they would be called racist, wouldn't they? And President Trump is regularly called a racist. Um, uh, I I think the individual uh, who was probably most hurt yesterday by this controversy the former vice president caused was Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Because had there existed any dim chance that the former vice president would have wound up selecting her for the vice presidential spot, um, I think he is now more than ever uh, obligated to... um, to choose an African-American woman. Um, And uh, so whatever, whatever remaining hopes Liz Warren had, I think were dashed yesterday. I don't think in electoral terms, it will hurt the former vice president significantly uh, because as you know, 92% of African-American voters uh, already support the former vice president. Now, had we not had the pandemic and had the economy been chugging along in the, in the very healthy, um, form it had exhibited until around February or March, uh, where there were record low unemployment levels for African Americans and for Latinos uh, and for women. Um, I th- think that uh, President Trump could have possibly managed uh, in what we might call otherwise normal setting of, of, of the year 2020 to um, maybe chip away at that 92% of African American support for Biden, for Mr. Biden. I think think he might have been able to, let's say, uh, chip off 5%. That would make a huge difference. I mentioned before the demographic changes in, in the country. I'm, I'm uh, indebted to my friend, the Democratic strategist, Joe Trippi, yeah. who, who, who once told me that George H.W. Bush, in winning the presidency in 1988, captured 59% of the white male vote. Uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 lost the race for the presidency, capturing 59% of the white male vote. So 5% difference in the voting patterns of African-Americans would make a huge uh, difference for the Republican candidate. And I I close this little um, soliloquy with a uh, a trivia question for you, Ivan. Which, Which Republican president in modern times which, let me put it differently, which Republican nominees in modern times, respectively, claim the record for the largest share of the African-American vote and the largest share of the Latino vote? Well, that was George, uh, George W. Bush, 2004, right? Correct. Something yeah, like 40 uh, to 44 percent of, yeah, the, of the Latino vote. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the anguish and end the drama and suspense by telling you that Richard Nixon, in the year 1960, against Pre- uh, John F. Kennedy, captured 32% of the African-American vote. Oh my God. Um, and uh, again, if, if President Trump could simply increase it from say 5% to 10%, it would make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, you know, the question is, will that happen? As I say, I think it would have been likelier had the economy crested along. But in, in the wake of the pandemic, I think it's unlikely we'll see large scale defection in the African-American community from the Democratic ticket. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, before this economy collapsed, things were just going awesome. Historic numbers all around. I, 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 I honestly thought um, he, would, he would have uh, taken probably 12, 
maximum, maximum 15 points, but 12 was probably realistic. And I thought we were going to push the number of Hispanic vote up to like 40%, between 35 and 40%. And that would have been, a, that would have been you know, a destruction. Um, right now, I don't know. Let's see what happens. You know, there's still a lot of clock, 80, 89 or 88 days left. So we'll see. Hey, James, I appreciate your time, man. I know you got to run. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's always great speaking to somebody uh, that actually uh, can, can talk facts and have a real conversation and, uh, and not just make it about commentary. You're a great professional, man. Uh, America's lucky to have you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. And where can, uh, where, where can they find your book? Where can they follow you? Obviously, you're everywhere. Well, Ivan, thank you for your kind words, and thank you for having me on the show. It was a real pleasure for me as well. Uh, you can follow me uh, in my work as a Washington correspondent for the Sinclair Broadcast Group on your local Sinclair stations uh, across the country. You can uh, follow me on Twitter, at James Rosen TV, and all three of my books are available on Amazon. The Strongman, John Mitchell, and the Secrets of Watergate, uh, a history of the Nixon presidency that is assuredly not your father's history of the Nixon presidency. Uh, Cheney One-on-One, -on -one, uh, which is a set of transcripts of my 10 hours of oral history interviews of former Vice President Dick Cheney, conducted in 2014, uh, part of which was excerpted as the Playboy interview with Dick Cheney. And then my last book, my third book, was the only one of my books that was a bestseller, Ivan. And I like to say that this is chiefly because someone else wrote it. Uh, it was called A Torch Kept Lit, Great Lives of the 20th Century. Uh, and this was a collection of writings by the late William F. Buckley Jr., whom we mentioned earlier, which I conceived and curated and edited. Uh, so you can find the books on Amazon.com. And thank you once again for having me, Ivan. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, the great James Rosen. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with more Battleground. And this is Battleground. And like you heard, Jim, welcome to the show. We have the great Jim Hansen. 88 days to Election Day. General Quarters, we are at our battle stations. What the hell is going on, Jim? We have the psychopath anarchist suing for riot gear. We have some lunatic in New York suing to dismantle the NRA. Uh, Nancy Pelosi and Schumer, who knows what the hell they're doing, but anything except helping the American people and working with the White House to pass some kind of relief bill. Uh, they're, they're hiding Biden in the basement. He doesn't know where he is half the time. He doesn't know who, who they're going to pick for his running mate. Uh, the other half the time, he doesn't know who he is. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. It is a pandemonium out there. Hopefully you can shed some light and help us regular folks understand what the hell is going on, Jim. You know, I would like to class myself among the regular folks, first of all. <laughs> I may do some I, of this think tank I, stuff. I, I forgot, I, you know, I'm assuming everybody knows you, but Jim, you know, uh, why don't you walk us through, you know, who you are. I, I know you're on Fox a lot. You're the president of the uh, uh, Strategic Studies Group, right? Or, Security Studies Group. Security Studies Group. Sorry about that. Uh, um, no worries. But I, I'll give you the, the short and dirty. I am a, a former Special Forces weapons guy. Wow. And uh, when I got out, I did some time in the business world, uh, executive search and things like that, but got uh, a little interested in the world again and really found uh, 
a major flaw and a, a weakness in US policy in the area of information operations. We are constantly getting killed by, by our enemies and by uh, domestic folks as far as our ability to put out a positive message about the US and counter bad ones and deal with propaganda and things like that. So security studies group specializes uh, in both the, uh, the study of information operations and we've been involved in crafting policy and, and other things, both uh, normal national security and foreign policy type things and also the information component of those um, helping the administration try to get better at that. Fantastic, and we need that so much. I mean, like you just said, um... I, I hate to bash our side, man, but you know, uh, we, we just do a terrible job. We get we get our our, our lunch taken from us, uh, our, our lunch money taken from us every single day, right? Uh, well, the left's got the the most of the creatives, you know. I mean, if you if you're going to do the simplest split between the political left and right in America, the left is the creatives and the you know academic style intellectual ivory tower types. Yeah. And the right is the producers and the, the workers and the people who deal with tangible substantive things. And the skills for marketing and propaganda and messaging and all that are all on the creative side. Yeah. So, you know, they've got the talent for it. They're good at it. And like you said, and I said, they've been killing us at it for a long time. And I think that the nice thing about Trump in, in many ways is, he basically kicked over their whole game by becoming a major league communicator direct to the American people. And for good and bad sometimes, you know, he's not always helpful with it, right. but he changed the game in a way that needed to happen. And that's something we have him to thank. Yeah. And you know what, that's a great point because uh, not, not, not to uh, pat myself on the back here, but you know, I, I, I'm that that's kind of my style too. Right. And that was, always something that I really had a big issue with on our side in Hispanic media, right? Um, first of all, there's nobody on, on the Hispanic, um, in Hispanic media that, that, is, uh, that is right of center. Everybody is, is left. You look at Jorge Ramos and everybody else, they're just psychos. Um, and the folks that we would send out there to do media would show up, bow their head, apologize for being Republican, and they'd get the crap kicked out of them, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we share, you know, some common friends, and you probably heard. I mean, you know, I, I went out there, and, you know, I used to always go out there uh, be, being a media surrogate for, for many cycles. But on this last one, I, I was just, you know, finally uncuffed. It was just great, you know, to finally say, hey, you know, I don't have to tone it down and I can just walk in there and just punch somebody right in the mouth and, uh, and enjoy it. And, and that's what we did. You know, uh, we, we put a little team together of folks and we would, we just went out there and just hammered them and hammered them really, really, really hard. And, and I think, uh, you know, we were able to make a difference and that's how I ended up doing this stuff. Right. Is, um, you know, I said, wow, you know, we were pretty effective. We were able to really change the, uh, the, the narrative, on you know what happens in, in Spanish language. So we launched a show, we got it all the way to number one, then we launched Battleground and then you and and, and another show that's actually gonna be carried on national network uh, once everything normalizes probably over the next, you know, probably after Labor Day. But uh, but anyways, enough about me. You're the stud, man. Uh, what's, what's wrong with these people, man? They're suing well, riot gear. They wanna 
dismantle the NRA forever. Biden's hiding. They're pushing this narrative about no debates. They, they honestly think they can get away with him not debating. I don't think the American people are going to elect somebody hiding in a, in a basement and not wanting to debate. What, what, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's an easy one. There's, there's no way they can get away with that. They're going to end up having to debate. And, and that's a problem. You know, obviously, Biden's shown he's not up to even simple interviews. And if he didn't have the entire mainstream media running air cover for him and correcting what he says, like, you know, Biden says, black people have no diversity of thought. They're like, what Biden actually meant to say and said is that black people have a lot of diversity of thought. You know, and they're just shamelessly correcting him for himself and, and hiding him from the world. But we're, we're not going to let him get away with that. The country will not let him get away with that. And he's going to have to stand up and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump. And if he's got to stand there for an hour you know, or more with, uh, with President Trump, he's going to be in a bad way. And so that's helpful, I think, for our team because he's not up to it. I think uh, the, the other difficulty that the Democrats have right now is Americans hate anarchy. You know, we hate looting. We hate rioting. Normal people who are the ones, you know, everybody whose mind's made up is kind of one way or the other on that. But they're in the middle. Those people are like, wait a minute, is this rioting going to stop? And if that's Biden and the Democrats team that's doing that, why would we hire them? So I think those things are, are major problems for the Democrats. You know, Trump's not doing great in polling. But I think that that whole silent majority concept is real, and I think it's going to come out. Well, that's a great point. And, um, and, and I was just looking at the average for um, real clear politics, and Trump is actually within four points. So, you know, the, the polls have tightened up. We expected that to happen. But, you know, the president has had, you know, a pretty good week. The uh, the left has had a pretty bad one. Biden isn't helping himself, like you said. But um, I want to go and, and I want to touch on something where, where you know, it clearly is your area of expertise, security, and the riots, looting, arson, assault, and murder that we're seeing under this disguise of uh, Black Lives Matter, which is really just a Marxist, you know, organization. The security moms. They hate it. You know, now here's the thing. There, there is a, a break right now in America where the Black Lives Matter statement saying that Black Lives Matter is required. You know, you can't be a, anyone but someone like us who are willing to take, you know, let people take shots at them and say, well, no, it is a garbage Marxist organization. And while Black Lives Matter, all lives matter, you know, in the same way. We can do that because we're willing to take the heat. Normal people can't do that because they'll get canceled from the PTA. You know, they'll get kicked out of their garden club. They will lose their soccer coaching job. You know, people are just that vicious in the, in the shunning that they're doing around this. So you kind of have to be careful in saying that. But we also can't be shy about the fact that this is an armed insurrection now. It is. You know, I mean, it has been going on so long and it is so violent and so continuous that to call it anything else is unfair. Now, President Trump called you know, Antifa a domestic terror organization. He hasn't done the same with BLM and I think that's probably smart from a PR perspective, but they're, they're amorphous. You know, between the two, it's one giant blob of people who are angry 
and I'm talking about the activist end. There are peaceful protesters, let's be clear. There are peaceful protesters, but there are way too many violent rioters in those same groups. And that's what we can't tolerate. You're exactly right. And you know what, this week I was talking to, um, to, to a couple different guests about this uh, rise and embrace of Marxism by the Democratic Party. And, you know, that was one of the questions imposed is, is the Democratic Party the Marxist Party of America today? And, and you know, grabbing some, looking at history and, and grabbing some information of, of, you know, Marxist uprisings in the past and looking at our backyard, Latin America and around the world where these things have happened. You know, I've seen this movie before, and I know how it ends, <clears throat> and 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 it's and and it's the same the same roadmap. I just don't get why we why we're surprised that this is happening. You know, we've let these people take over the media, we've let these people take over academia, and then you know we're surprised that all these millennials and kids are out there, you know, demanding free shit. They don't want to work. You know, they're suing for riot gear. They're burning down places and taking over towns. And, and, and we're shocked. Um, yeah, no, I, I'll be honest. I'm not shocked. In the I'm not view. either. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are, and that's a fair point. And I think you pointed out how they did it. They did it by infiltrating academia. They did it by controlling our popular culture, because as Andrew Breitbart brilliantly said, politics is downstream from culture. So they began by inculcating those values into TV and movies and things like that. But then they started training the kids. They started at university and then they filtered down even through K through 12 now has a large element of social justice taught to kids. So they've got a couple of generations, as you mentioned, that have now been trained essentially as cadre. You know, and that was a Mao concept. You know, you train the cadres and the cadres will take over the world for you. And I, I don't think Lenin or Stalin or anybody else would not recognize what's going on. Yeah, and, and I think no, and, and it's and a flavor a, of socialism. Yeah, and that's a great point because I want to I, I want to pause you there for a second, Jim, because I used this example, um, I think yesterday, the day before about Mao, right? So in Peru, I don't know if you, you remember, uh, you probably do being security, uh, the shining path, right? Terrorist. Sendero Luminoso. That's right. Sendero Luminoso, Imael Guzman. Psycho, crazy, bloodiest you know, criminal out there, right? And what did he do? Academia, University of Ayacucho. And it started like this, right? It started this way and then with, with some violence and protests and burning tires and breaking windows and then turned out into a full terrorist uprising, right? Where they had car bombs, uh, you know, kidnappings, uh, shootings, executions. It was crazy. And I see the same thing. And you brought up Mao, because uh, that, that was a Maoist movement, right? And what did, he, what did he say? You know, he used to say, you know, el pensamiento Gonzalo, and he would tap his head, right? Because he, he would call himself Presidente Gonzalo. And, and that's what he was said, you know, the body will die, but the, but the thought, the idea, the ideology will continue. And I see that. I see that here. And I'm like, we, I know we have really smart people people that have seen terrorism, people that, that are security experts, why are we not pointing this out? Why are we, how are we letting this happen? We're, we're almost well, at that, we're almost at that point, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and here's why we're stuck. 
because they have indoctrinated the cadres already, it, you, you can't overcome that. All right, so they've got their cadres out and they've got people scared to oppose this movement now. Now, here's the problem they have. They were doing a great job with kind of a stealth socialism for many years where they weren't, where they wouldn't admit it. If you ask them, are we socialists? Oh, no, 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 we're not. Right. We're progressives, we're liberals. We just, you know, we're Democrats. Yeah. And they were doing a great job because they were winning under that banner, using that marketing. The problem is when Trump came in, the left tore their masks off and they started admitting it. They started saying, hell yeah, we're socialists. Of course we are because the capitalist system must be torn down. You know, it's a white supremacist country. We must destroy it and rebuild it. And that's where they screwed up. That's another thing that Trump brought is he made them crazy and they showed their true colors. So now they're telling people that they want to do this. They're, they're admitting these things. And America's kind of standing back going, come on, really? And then they blow some stuff up and burn some things. They're like, well, I guess they mean it. And so I think they may have overstepped, you know, their, their bounds where they'd have been smarter to keep it as a stealth movement, you know, and go a little slower. But they couldn't. They got mad. They hate Trump. They had to go. And now they think they're conducting a revolution. Yeah. And they are. And they're winning. All right, let's be clear. Yeah. Right now, they are winning this revolution. But like you said, people are starting to point it out. People are starting to stand up and say, yes, this is a socialist revolution. And yes, those of us who are old enough to have you know, at least known what the Cold War was, know that socialism doesn't work. Right. And real socialism of the kind they want to do um, ain't going to change because people don't change. So that's where I think we can start the counter-revolution. Yeah, and it's extremely dangerous. We see you know, everywhere where it's implemented, it's failed, right? And, 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 and you know... It's O for the I'm, world. Yeah, I'm not shy to say this, Jim, and I say it all the time, you know, socialism, Marxism only guarantees a few things, and that's, you know, chaos, misery, corruption, and destruction, and, you know, ultimately death, right? Um, but there's nothing positive about any of those things. Um, why the hell would they want this? You have some kind of, uh, I can't remember who the guy was, but he is, um, the, the, he was a legislator, I can't remember what you say, maybe you remember, um, that he is calling for the ban, the ban of teaching history in schools. That history right. should no longer be taught in schools. Well, because that's what you got to do. You know, the problem is if you teach history, like you said, it shows that socialism has never worked and it can never work because the very idea that people will be unselfish and work harder themselves so that others can have more and they can have less is absurd. I mean, that's, that's counter to human nature. So we know that and history knows that and they have to ban it. Now, where we can go ahead and, and begin, like I said, the counter revolution to this is to point out, let's take some of the demands of the Black Lives Matter movement, and these other people, and say, if you wanna talk about those, then we need to talk about the whole thing. We need to talk about whether America as a free country is a good idea, because that's not an argument they're gonna win. You know, they've got some disparate outcome and they've got some other things that they will show. But if you dig beneath the surface of that, it turns out that most of that is not racism or it's not other things. There are other factors they don't want to talk about. That's a conversation that a positive message from the right about prosperity, about freedom and about these other things can win. But we have to start making it in a smart way. 
And I think that's, uh, that's an argument I want to have. I was hoping Bernie would be the candidate so we could have socialism versus capitalism as the theme of this election, because I, I'll take that any day. That's a winning fight for us. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I was I was hoping on that uh, on, on on that matchup as well. I think it, you know, Newt used to say something all the time, and 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 you know, uh, I, I I respect Newt a lot. Um, I think he's you know typically, you know, always one of the smartest guys in the room. Um, he's always say, you know, you have to be able to draw sharp contrast between yourself and the other side. And that would have been a very, very nice race to have because it would have been clearly a very sharp contrast between what is America versus what is a failed ideology. But, um, hey, Jim, shifting gears here a little bit, um, I'm a big 2A guy, man. Um, I think you can't have, you know, the First Amendment without the second one right behind it, right? What the hell are these clowns trying to do with the NRA? I think, you know, I, I don't think they're going to win, but uh, but I think it sets a very dangerous precedent, right? It's a 100% politically driven prosecution for the election cycle. You know, you drop this, what, three months before the election. Ooh, weird. The timing on that is just you know, kind of odd to me. Um, and and let's, let's at least admit that the NRA did not do themselves any favors with that big leadership fight they had, you know, between Ollie North and those guys, where it came out that they did a lot of somewhat sketchy things. But you fix that by fixing it. You don't decide to disband the organization. And it just shows that the left believes that the Second Amendment has to go. You know, they've never wanted an armed citizenry. And hmm, can you think of an ideology where the first thing they do is disarm the citizens before they put in state control and start reprogramming and re-educating anybody? We, we've we just seen that about everywhere. That? We've yeah. seen it everywhere. You know, we've seen but it. The, yeah, but the 2A concept here is if they attack that, they think that energizes their team because, oh, school shootings are bad and these other things are bad. True. But we can just take a moment right now to thank Antonin Scalia, for writing what's probably the most important legal opinion of the past 50 years, which was DC versus Heller, which enshrined every, every argument the left makes about the Second Amendment. He laid the historical and legal basis for beating it down and crushing it when they bring it in that, in that opinion. So the Second Amendment is safe unless you know, the liberals manage to take over the Supreme Court. Right now, Trump gave us two justices and we've got a little bit of safety. But I, I think this attack on the NRA is an acknowledgement of the fact that they can't do this legally. So they're gonna do it using you know, abuse of power and attacks on private organizations. It's, uh, it's pretty shameful. Yeah, you know what? And, and, and that's what people don't get. And um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I, I try not to hit people hard on, on lack of knowledge or of information because I get it. You know, you just watch TV or, 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 or football or basketball and go to work and, you know, take the kids to soccer or something. But, you know, the information's out there, history's out there. You look at just recently, just recently, without going too far on this abuse of power stuff. And, and the left has a very clear roadmap, right? I mean, all we have to do is just go back in history and, and they continue to do the same thing. 
over and over again, and it continues to fail, but they have some initial success. Look at Peru recently. You know, uh, they took out a sitting president, uh, the left did, uh, by, by, you know, packing the courts with left-wing judges. Then they took out every single former president and every single political opponent, all of them in jail. Uh, in in Colombia, they just arrested president, former President Uribe, believe it or not, one of the best presidents probably Latin America has had in a long, long time in decades. Um, you look at what happened here, Jim, with this whole Russian collusion crap. Um, it, just the abuse of power coming from you know the bureaucracy and the left is is not new. Um, that was just oh, no. to uh, James Rosen earlier before you came on. And we were talking about the abuse of power that, that, that happened during uh, the Obama administration in his case, right? Um, the left has a history of doing this. Uh, why do we let that happen? Especially in America. <laughs> I would have never thought that America, in the year 2020, we would be having a conversation about Marxism taking over the country, a, a major party, and possibly winning a general election, Jim. Yeah, I think that, uh, again, that's one of the other splits between left and right, is the left believes in state power, the right believes the state's power is dangerous, and the founders agreed with us. You know, the founders specifically, just about every bit of the documents they wrote to get this country rolling was designed to ensure that the state could not oppress the citizen. You know, that was the whole concept. That is the, when people talk about American exceptionalism, that's what it is. It's not that we think we're better or cooler than anybody. It's that we founded a country based on the idea that individual liberty trumps state power. And the left obviously believes the exact opposite. And that, that really is our biggest weapon in the fight against the left, in the fight against their attempt to impose socialism is the fact that the constitution is really, really good and really on our side. And I think again, back to the PR information war, we need to remind people why that is. You know, 40% of millennials think that hate speech is not protected by the first amendment. That's absurd. You know, I mean, if there's one thing, you know, I don't, I'm not a fan of hate speech. I think it's heinous. But the reason the first amendment exists is for offensive speech. It's not for speech we all agree on, you wouldn't need one. You know, you don't need a first amendment to, uh, you know, keep people safe for saying puppies are nice. You need it for people saying that Nazis are nice. And we want them to say Nazis are nice so that we can see them and counter that speech with better speech. We don't want them to hide it and go underground and be dangerous. And again, those, those are the PR wars now that since the left has declared their allegiance to socialism, we can have those fights. And those fights are to our advantage, you know, in, in every case. And we just have to figure out now how to get a parallel education system going so the coming generations don't get the same indoctrination into these leftist ideas that the last couple have. We need a you know, vocational, technical, you know, and maybe add IT into it where the hard sciences and stuff like that don't go to liberal arts colleges. 
Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, uh, I, I think, you know, STEM is the way to go. That's the way we should be gearing everybody towards, especially on the cyber side, right? Cybersecurity is something that is ongoing. I think we have a, uh, a tremendous delta in, in that area of hundreds of thousands of jobs that are, that are simply not filled because there's not enough talent out there. We need to start refocusing and then um, retooling, right? Um, let, let me ask you um, from, from a COVID standpoint, um, we had the greatest economy in the world, the lowest unemployment numbers in the history for Hispanics, for African-Americans, for women, for Asians, um, the first time real wage growth in over a decade, mostly impacting Hispanics, by the way. So, you know, it was just fantastic uh, for, for, for the Hispanic community. They really got it. They really saw, um, you know, okay, maybe they didn't like, you know, his tweets or his tone, but they, you know, they loved his policies. We saw that on polls, you know, several polls in a row where he was at 49, 50, 51% approval among Hispanics. Um, we were on our way to really just, it was going to be a bruising and devastating defeat for the left, regardless of who they brought up. Um, we saw numbers, you know, in the twenties for the African-American community for approval numbers for, for the president as well. Then this pandemic hits, um, you know, we can get into all the details of, you know, why and how it happened, but, um, you know, the, this, this, this crisis that was created, and you shut down, you turn off the greatest economy in the world. Now, you know, we're facing, you know, <clears throat> a very, very tough situation with, um, you know, tens of millions of, of, of Americans unemployed. Um, I don't know what the number is that are facing, you know, evictions or foreclosures. Uh, Congress is fighting over uh, another rescue bill. Um, we already know that unless you have underlying health conditions, unless you're elder, um, if you're a regular person, you know, it's a three to five day thing. You get the sniffles, a cough, maybe, you know, like a cold type thing and, and, and you're done. Why don't we open it the hell up and get back to work and let's kickstart this economy. What the hell are we waiting for? What's, what's, what's going on? I mean, uh, there's so many of us that are just, you know, we don't get it. We're, we're, it just seems bizarre, Jim. Well, there's one, there's, I think two major things at play. One is the, the people on the left and in these Democrat-ruled states are used to being told what to do, and they like it. You know, I mean, that, that's the other difference, again, between left and right. Eagles don't flock, and in my opinion, the left has a herd mentality, you know, and, and more of a sheep than, yeah. than anything else. So they're used to it. They want it. They want, if there's something scary going on, then they want the government to tell them what to do. And so the Democrat governors like control and, you know, the Democrat mayors like control. So they're bossing people around. Um, the nice thing, though, again, is that now there's a, a serious delineation between Trump trying to put the country back to work and Republican governors following his lead and the Democrats trying to keep the economy shut down. People know who's letting them go back to work and people need to go back to work. Uh, another major mistake is trying to keep the schools shut. You know, the, the parents not, you know, my kid's grown, but parents are sick of their kids. You know, at this point, they would put them out with the recycling if the city would take them away. <laughs> so they want them to go back to school and they need to go back to school. Yeah. And they're not really at risk. So these are things where I think there's a, a big gap going again between who is in favor of getting America back to work and 
doing it and who's in favor of trying to use the government as a giant ATM to pay everybody while they sit and, you know, and the liberals who do this are, are comfortable. You know, most of them are information workers or administrative types. Yep. They're not, you know, out working. They're fine at home. Yeah. You know, so they just assume, oh, send me some money and everything will be fine. Yep. Well, no, we have a huge economy. It needs to go. And I think uh, that that's a place where it'll come out in our favor in the long run. Yep. Jobs numbers this week were good. You know, I mean, 1.8 million jobs this week. Yeah. We're down to 10.2% unemployment, I think. Yep. Yep. You know, it's, it's going the right way. And people know who's for that and who's against. Yeah, but hey, I I, I gotta I gotta tell you, Jim. You know, ten percent is ten percent. It's a high number. We're at three point seven. Um, that that was just awesome, awesome stuff. Um, well, I, you know, I think what we need to do is remind everybody where we were before this happened, right? And and that most of this crap is created by Democrats because. I don't think we needed to shut down the whole country. And, um, and I think we can definitely get there. I mean, the president feels very comfortable that we can get to, 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 to those numbers again and roar the economy. He did it before. I think he's going to do it again. Um, I, you know, and, and I say this to so many people is November 4th, COVID's not even going to be an issue with anybody. <laughs> Yesterday's news. Yep. They're going to forget about it. It's like, whatever, go, go to work, go to school. Uh, you know, the election's over. We don't care. Right. I mean, yeah. Oh, it was, it was a, that was the other half of it. It was a political way to damage Trump and damage the right. So I, I don't think there's a, and that's shameless and cold blooded, but it's just true. You know, I mean, there, there is no love on the left for humanity that trumps their hate of Trump. So they made some horrible decisions that I think we're in time going to be able to see more clearly. And again, be able to point back to and say, you know, okay, it's all well and good for the media to say Trump caused all these deaths. But I think when you do the math, we're gonna find out it was Mario Cuomo and you know, the other Democrat governors who shoved a bunch of sick people back into old folks' homes and killed more people than you know, anyone else even came close to. Yeah, it's crazy. Hey, Jim, how do you uh, how do you see the elections? Uh, obviously, the polls are starting to tighten up. Uh, Biden is a mess. He's not getting any better. What's going to happen from from now to the election? Obviously, people are going to start paying attention after Labor Day, right? That's historically the way it goes. You know, I mean, everybody's busy during the summer trying to have some fun to the extent that you could still do that. I, I think that's still evident. Um, once the presidential debates start, which they will. And, you know, America's like, okay, now we got two people, you know, we got two guys standing up there. Um, let's judge between them. I think that comparison goes to Trump um, because he'll be well prepared with arguments and Biden will be, you know, hoping to remain standing and not say anything <laughs> totally ignorant during his entire time. Um, but God, I just, I have no idea what's going what's gonna to be because we got the whole mail-in ballot thing, you know? So that's, that's the thing that's really scary at this point is I think, I think there is, are enough people who want to vote for Trump that he can still get elected. Yeah. I have no idea, come November 4th, what we're going to be looking at. I don't think anybody does. Yeah, does this mail-in ballot um, thing go forward? Oh, know. they're doing it. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing it in plenty of places. Trump may win a few challenges. He's you know, challenging in Nevada and other places. But there's plenty of places where that happened. Here is the interesting thing where Democrats may be screwing themselves. 
is more Republicans say they're going to vote in person. And, you know, it's like 25% might do mail-in balloting. And then for Democrats, it's like 70% want to do mail-in balloting. Well, the, the percentage of mail-in ballots that get invalidated is like a third. Because if your signature's wrong, if there's things wrong with the ballot, it doesn't count. Right. Whereas if you show up, show your ID, your vote's in the back, yeah. right? So they're literally giving themselves a disadvantage. They think they're, they're winning something there. I think this may be another one of those law of unintended consequences things is that if their votes, you know, get invalidated or don't show up on time or whatever, hey, sorry for you, you know, you yeah. thought you were pulling a trick and it backfired. Well, I'm concerned about the fraud, right? Because one thing is an absentee ballot, as you know. Um, another thing is mailing a ballot to every registered voter in a state. And, yeah. you know, while the, well, you know, we had uh, John Merrill, Secretary of State for uh, Alabama. Good guy. And, and, you know, like you said, hey, you know, uh, I, I don't want to point fingers, but, you know, when Joe the mailman is dropping off, uh, you know, the ballots, you know, in, in, in your neighborhood, there's somebody right behind them in a pickup truck taking them out of mailboxes. Right? <laughs> and then the Democrats have, have registered, you know, every, every living, breathing. Oh, living? Duck. What do you mean? You're being yeah, generous, dead. man. They, they have dead people vote, illegals <laughs> vote, you know, come on. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. And they, they have, a, there, there are a lot of ballots going to be to people and things that don't exist. Yep. And the question is, can the Democrats systemically gather and process enough of those without getting caught? Um, to swing an election. Um, I think they're trying. I think they've been working on this in California and other places to see Does how it really works. matter in California? I mean, we're not going to win California. No, but it, that's why it's a good place to, to do their testing. Yeah. You know, and, and in the previous elections, they've been trying to see, okay, if we register a bunch of non-existent voters, and they literally were sending ballots from Orange County, which is the bluest, or yeah. excuse me, the reddest county in California. They were sending them from there to a, P.O. Box in Sacramento. Wow. You know, and they had like 100 registrations all going to the same P.O. Box. Wow. That's a little sketchy, yeah. you know. So I think they've been trying this stuff. I, I don't know if they've got it on an industrial scale yet, but I, I hope that our election monitors are watching. Man, we, we, we definitely <laughs> got a fight going forward. Uh, any, word on, uh, any word on the vaccine and what, what's, what's the latest and greatest coming out of there? Well, I mean, it looks like the vaccine program is the one thing that's going at full speed and nobody has managed to screw up yet. So I'm, I'm a, you know, that's the only thing that's going to stop the COVID. Yeah. You know, we'll never, we can't get to herd immunity without it. And anybody who wants to get mad about a vaccine and Bill Gates and stuff, I understand. You know, right now, I don't trust anybody. either. Yeah. All right. I don't trust anything coming out of anywhere. But vaccination is a well-established science. You know, and I think it's something that if you want to stop the masks and you want to get back to a normal world, that's the only thing that's going to do it. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Trump's very hopeful that it's going to come out in the next couple of months. I, I know they're testing them. And I know there's people who have taken the test. They're into human testing. Um, hopefully it'll come, you know, as quick as it can. And hey, when it comes out, I, I think everybody should take it. Awesome, man. Hey, Jim, thanks for being on the show, man. You're a stud. Um, hopefully you'll come back, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was fun. Yeah, good talking with you. All right, awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Jim Hansen, president of the Security Studies Group, former Army Special Forces. Jim, thanks for being on. All right, always a pleasure.
Excellent. And don't go, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more Battleground. Hope you enjoyed our podcast today. We had a couple great guests. Uh, next week is going to be packed, packed, packed. I'm not going to tell you who it's co- who's coming, but uh, we have some big names coming. Um, you do not want to miss next week. But hopefully, um, hopefully you, you enjoyed our podcast this week. Have a great weekend. And please don't forget to visit our sponsor, Hispanic Leadership Council at hlc.gop. We need your support, need your help. We need to win the Hispanic vote, bring it over to the GOP, and slam dunk this victory for Donald Trump. Uh, HLC.GOP, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week on Battleground. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.